Good morning, everyone. In the first service, I walked up confidently to begin preaching, and I didn't have my Bible with me. And Adrian had to save the day and bring it to me. Um, but I have it now. So let's open together to the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 5. Let's read together verses 14 and 15 only. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your word again, Father, and we thank you though that, that even though we come and read only two short verses, that there is so much here that is rich for our edification, for the building up of the church. And so again, Lord, we cry out for soft hearts, open hearts to hear what you have to say. We pray, Lord, that through this passage that hearts that are broken would be mended, hearts that are harboring bitterness or grudges would be broken and healed. And we pray, Father, that we would come out of this having been transformed by your word and loving one another all the more for the time we've had together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Charles Spurgeon said, If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, it should have been spoiled, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. There is no perfect church, not even the church in Thessalonica that Paul loved so dearly. His praise for them has been great, as we've seen. In chapter 1, he praises them for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He praises them because they were examples, he says, to all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, and that in the midst of great trials, still through them, the word sounded forth and their faith was known among all. There was great reason to rejoice in this church, and yet it shouldn't surprise us that Paul speaks of this church with these groups in mind here, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, even those who have done harm and caused hurt. Every church has its problems. And every church has problem people. In fact, Look up at the mirror and you'll see one of those problem people. And yet Paul has this unshakable hope for the church that has shaped his life. He's put all of his eggs in the one basket in the church because he loves the church and he trusts in her Savior. 
Remember his words we read last week, 2 Timothy 1.12. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He has poured out his life for the church. We have seen it in his heart in the pages of this book. He says, when we came to you, we came and we were gentle like a mother. We spoke to you with a father's heart. Chapter 2, verse 8, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. In chapter 3, we saw his great concern for the church, the time that he's been apart from them. How he managed, despite the danger of that journey, to send Timothy back to, to get a report when he simply could not bear it any longer and had to know how they were doing. We saw the intensity of his feelings and his hope for them in statements like this. 2 verse 19 to 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you, church? For you are our glory and joy. And he shared his prayer for them in chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And Paul's heart for the church is the model for every single believer. It is to be our heart for the church as well. And so before you are tempted to say, yes, it would be much easier to have Paul's heart for the church if my church was just a little bit more like the Thessalonian church. We have these precious verses in chapter 5 to remind us that there is no perfect church and that it wasn't any easier to love the church back then. When you're called to love the church, it means loving even when the love is difficult. And if we humble ourselves today. We have another opportunity for Paul to address our hearts, to speak about two conditions of the heart that often exist even in the church and stand in the way of beautiful and good relationships. In verse 14, he speaks about patience because it is impatience that stands in our way. And in verse 15, we see this Desire for revenge that we know so often is in our hearts as well. So we come to the Word of God to evaluate our hearts as an imperfect people, among living among an imperfect people, which is still, as Spurgeon said, the dearest place on earth. And as I try to continue, <laughs> I have two headings for today, one for verse 14 and one for verse 15. In verse 14, we see that we are called to patience in order to meet the needs of all. In verse 15, to pursuing not revenge, but the, the good of all. Number one, patience to meet the needs of all. Let's read verse 14 together. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So last week we began this section at the end of the book on Paul's instructions by considering the ministry of the leaders of the church to the members of the church and the members of the church to the leaders of the church. And Paul ended with this note, 
Be at peace among yourselves. His command was given to them as brothers, a reminder that they belonged to the family of God, that they belonged together to the Father and to one another. We are the children of God who love peace because we've been reconciled to God by the blood of Christ. We are the people of peace. Paul has not changed the people to whom he's addressing in verses 14 to 15. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers. He's speaking here to the whole church, and he introduces these ministries. Admonish, encourage, help. And here they are not ministries for the elders alone, but they are ministries that belong to the members of the church. This is Paul's point, remember, in Ephesians chapter 4. He says the church has been given leaders for what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. John Stott writes about how he saw this illustrated so well in a church's organogram that he read in their their bulletin, an Anglican church. It listed the rector of the church with the man's name, and then it listed the associate rector and the assistant rectors with their names. And then under the title ministers, it just said the entire congregation, the entire congregation, the ministry of care belongs to us all. So when you see somebody in the church who needs care, who needs help or encouragement, your first port of call and your first instinct, your response should not just be to send an email to an elder. Elders might need to be involved, but your first instinct should be to reach out and to minister yourself. The call is for all of us. It's for the elders as well, and and we care through preaching and teaching and counseling and taking the opportunities of visitation that we can, but primarily, the ministry of care belongs to you, and it happens in your home groups, it happens in private prayer, in moments of discipleship, even on a Sunday morning, that word of encouragement. It happens as we seek out those who need it and it happens as we give of ourselves sacrificially to and for one another and so we're going to consider these three ministries but before I do that we ought to let this last line of verse 14 speak the loudest Paul says be patient with them all patience must reign in our interactions with one another so before you approach anyone to admonish or to encourage or to help. What you need is a healthy dose of mercy and love. You need a very big mirror that you look into on a regular basis that will provide for you circumspection and gentleness and compassion and patience. Because when you look in the mirror, what you see there is somebody who at one time or another needed to be admonished or encouraged or helped. You see the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak. If patience doesn't control you, it's better just to not open your mouth at all. Because with patience comes wisdom, and with wisdom comes an appropriate response to what people need. It doesn't help to go in guns blazing before you understand what somebody needs. Somebody has said, a hammer thinks that everything is a nail. 
A blanket treats everyone as shivering. A wheelchair thinks everyone needs a lift. But wisdom sees people for what they are and gives what is needed. You don't want to admonish when somebody needs encouragement. You don't want to encourage when somebody needs admonish, admonition. And you need patience in close relationship to understand what, what people require, what their hearts need. And so before you speak, HBC, we, we need to learn to listen to one another. With that in mind, let's consider this calling of care that is ours. Number one, Paul says, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. The ESV translates it as idol, but strictly speaking, the word is broader than that. It was a common military term for a soldier who uh, kept or, or could not keep in rank, kept stepping out of line. The NASB translates it as unruly, and I think that's a good translation. The ideas of someone disordered or undisciplined, they're out of line, out of step. Everybody's going one direction and this, this poor sheep is going in a completely different direction all the time. And when that's the, the problem, the point is that you know, believers are called to obedience and faithful service. We're called to a, a lifestyle that glorifies Christ. And, and sometimes, often, this is what you find, somebody who just doesn't seem to be with it. Maybe apathetic to the things of the Lord. Maybe wayward in their heart through bitterness or anger or contentious spirit, not supportive. Whatever it is, Paul says when you see a brother or sister start wandering out of line, if you love them, you admonish them. You do it with patience, but you grab hold of them and you set them straight. This is the same word, by the way. You remember last week, we saw this word in verse 12. Now you expect that ministry from your elders. It says of the leaders that they admonish you because they are over you. But here it says that it is through the responsibility of all. The unruly need help to see the foolishness of sin, the seriousness of their path. They need to see afresh the holiness of God and His righteousness and His justice. And I know that this ministry is a difficult ministry. It is tough for me, and I'm a pastor. If I call you and say, I, I'll, let's go for a cup of coffee, already you're, you're wondering, what did I do wrong? <laughs> right? It must be way more difficult for you to do this, especially when it's somebody who is close to you to confront the sin in their lives. But when you care about somebody, you don't allow fear of rejection to stand in the way of speaking the truth in love. John MacArthur said this. He said, there is nothing in the word admonish of distant judgmentalism. And surely, surely the greatest transformation or possibility for transformation comes when it, it is somebody who I know loves me. I know they care for me, and yet they are willing to risk something with me to admonish me. How often don't we rob one another of the chance for growth in the church because we are too afraid to warn, too afraid to speak? Do you care more that that person would like you than you do for their growth in their holiness and in faith? I'm not saying that you need to bring up every little thing. You need wisdom to know when to speak. But just imagine a church culture 
where we love one another and care for one another, and there's a sincere care for growth that, that corresponds with a humility that desires that there would be people around me in my life that would be willing to speak and admonish. This is a ministry that belongs to us all. Number two, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. In John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, it, it tells the allegorical tale of the journey of Christian from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's a picture of the, the Christian life. And along the way, Christian faces so many dangers that are almost his undoing. He's almost killed in the valley of the shadow of death by Apollyon, who represents our, our great enemy, the devil. And he is enslaved and beaten to within an inch of his life by giant despair and doubting castle. And he gets eventually to the celestial city, but he gets there pretty battered and scarred, for the journey has been tough. Well, there's a second part to the book. It tells the story of Christiana, Christian's wife and their children, and their journey is way easier than Christian's. And it was so simply because of one character in that story, Mr. Greatheart. He's bold. He's a strong knight who loves adventure and is ready for anything. He fights Apollyon for them, and he lops off giant despair's head without even breaking a sweat. And Bunyan has a point in, in this. He wants us to see the importance of Christian community, that you need people who will walk alongside you, who are strong in the faith, and who will walk with you in your Christian journey. And so Paul gives this ministry to the church, this ministry of encouragement. And the word means literally to come alongside and to speak soothingly, reassuringly, See, the word faint-hearted is, is a combination of two Greek words. It literally means little-souled. Little-souled. It's very descriptive. There are some who maybe through their own personality, their own natural timidity, or through the circumstances that they, they find themselves in their life are fragile, are beset with anxieties and doubts, always waiting for the shoe to drop rather than being ready for whatever comes. And what they need is encouragement. There are people here today who need encouragement. And maybe this is you. You, you love Jesus. But for whatever reason, you are just struggling to believe that He's got you, your life, your future in His hands. Or you are beset with doubts about God's love. You see, while the unruly need to be warned, they need to be made more aware of God as ruler and judge, the faint-hearted need to be led again to a gentle Savior and be reminded that God is not only judge, but also Father. When you're speaking to the faint-hearted and they are facing problems and dangers that threaten to crush them under the weight, it doesn't help to diminish the seriousness of those problems. What they need is somebody to stand with them and believe with them the promises of God, the greater reality that is over their lives of His goodness and His love. As we sang this morning, when all I fear is all that is true, your perfect love is truer than that. 
the little soul need to remember the truths that always stand above the dangers that they face. Their, their psalm, their life psalm should be Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We don't encourage one another with empty platitudes. We encourage one another with the word of God. Stop looking inward for your assurance. Lift up your eyes and see the risen lamb slain for you. Stop looking to other saviors to rescue from disaster, but look around and see the one who is with you in the fire. Those who need to be encouraged don't need to be admonished. And it is difficult. Sometimes it, it is a pity party. Maybe and the best thing that somebody could receive is a little kick in the rear. But we pray for wisdom and help to know which is which. We need patience to do that. Number three, Paul says, help the weak. The weak here could be those who are particularly susceptible to temptations the dangers of besetting sins, or, or it could be those in society who others avoid and ignore, the, the poor, the addict, the refugee, the widow and the orphan, those whom society walks over, the church is called to lift up in patience and in love. And where these former commands admonish and encourage involve primarily a speaking ministry, the ministry of help is broader than that. It involves a self-giving, sacrificial engagement. And I'll prove it to you. This word is found elsewhere in the Bible. In Matthew 6.24 and Luke 16.13, where Christ says, you can only be devoted to one master. It's the same word, the word help. You can only be devoted to one master. It's also found in Titus 1 verse 9 in the qualifications of an elder. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That word hold firm is the same word. The idea here is that some people need for there to be others around them who say, I'm holding on to you and I'm not letting go. They need more than just words. They need sacrificial help and presence. Take my hand. God has not abandoned you and I won't let go of you either. Paul Washer tells a story of his time on mission in Peru. They were in a, a small, out-of-the-way, dusty little village, sitting on a dusty road, teaching um, pastors, and this little girl comes limping by. And while Paul Washer's teaching, he sees this little girl, and he, he stops and, and um, asks about her, and the pastors around tell her story of long-term suffering. She has something wrong with her leg that really needs corrective surgery. And so Washer says, I said to them, brothers, let's pray for her. He says, when I opened up my mouth to pray, I couldn't do it. There were no words that came. It was as if God was saying, what do you want to pray about? There's nothing to pray about. Go back to Lima, find a doctor, and fix her leg. And that is what they did. 
Some people need more than just your promise to pray. And we've got to stop lying to one another. I'll pray for you. And then do nothing and forget about it right afterwards. Sometimes somebody needs for you to say, hitch your life and your faith to mine and we will get through this together. We will battle this together. The church is not the world. The world says to you, focus on yourself, fill up your own tank. Don't let draining people drag you down. God says, be patient with them all. And the word patient means long-suffering. I love that word. How many a church wouldn't be transformed by this commitment to being long-suffering with one another, to giving greatly of our time and our energy for one another, being slow to speak and quick to listen, not easily offended or put off by the struggles of one another, bearing all things, Paul writes, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. We shouldn't allow fear to hold us back and rob the church of the ministry that we might give through our faithfulness. Maybe you feel today like you don't have anything to offer in this ministry of admonition and encouragement and help. Maybe you're worried that you're going to mess it up. Well, you're called to be courageous and try anyway. And remember this, that ultimately, whose hands is our sanctification in? It's in God's hands. Christ will not be divorced from this process when it works so beautifully in the life of the church, even through our imperfect efforts. It's true that your wisdom is not enough and that you will mess up. At times you will admonish when you should have encouraged and you will encourage when admonition was required and you will let someone down even when it was in your heart to hold fast to them in their weakness. You won't always get it right. But as we persist, we persist with confidence in Christ because He will take our efforts and multiply and use them. As we minister to one another, Christ Himself will hold the weak. He will encourage the faint-hearted and admonish the unruly and He will build His church. Don't you want to be a part of that process? In this way, church, we become more and more that gospel-shaped community, meeting one another, another's needs with all patience and love. Number two, he says, pursuing not revenge, but the good of all. Not revenge, but their good. There is a step up, isn't there, from verse 14 to 15. It, is, it gets personal now. It's one thing for me to be long-suffering with people when their struggles affect their own lives. But when they harm me and cause harm to me, that's another thing, isn't it? Verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but instead always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's a, a reason that we love those movies about revenge where This one righteous man has been wronged or something has been wronged. Man on fire and and he rains down a fire of vengeance on those instigators of evil. I finished preaching this sermon this morning and got to my chair and and Sheree said, you should have confessed before you even started preaching. I've been up since 2.30 this morning and it's because one of our neighbors had a party 
from like 1.30 till 5.30 in the morning. And, and I, I actually, I wake up at 5 a.m. to go through notes, and instead of going through my notes, I walked outside to make sure I could see which house it was, because they were still busy going. I was planning where my eggs would land on the way to church. <laughs> it's in our hearts, isn't it? We love it when somebody arrogant or proud or dishonest or abusive receives their comeuppance, a tendency to get back at them. It's, it's in us whether... The way that we have been harmed is serious and damaging and crushing. Paul is speaking to a church that is facing persecution. And he's saying, don't seek revenge. You seek the good of all. It's there whether it's serious or small or petty, like in my situation today. You won't live long anywhere, even in the church, without feeling the sting of hurt and the desire for revenge. And even as this verse gets brought up and we speak about these things, some of you have been so badly wrong that your temptation is to have your hearts shut and to say, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what I've been through. Isn't revenge in the Bible? I'm sure it's somewhere there in the Old Testament. Let me just live there, please. In the Old Testament law enshrined was this principle of retributive justice. Exodus 21, 23 to 25. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And you say, yes, preach. That is the verse I have on my coffee mug every morning when I'm plotting my revenge. Well, the law was given for a reason. It was given to limit revenge, actually, and to limit vendettas. So we, too, have a judicial system over us in our land. But Christ came, and he came and had a, a radical new command that honestly seems impossible at times. Matthew 5, 38 to 39, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That, that's difficult. Matthew 5, 43, 44. You have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You cannot pray for somebody when there's bitterness in your heart towards them. It seems extreme and it seems impossible, but things that are impossible are made possible by the transforming power of the gospel and the new heart that Christ gives. So how, church, how do we find the patience to understand and to engage again and again selflessly the needs of admonition and encouragement and help for those who are hurting in the church? And further than that, how do we refuse retaliation even when somebody willfully harms us, there is only one way, the cross of Christ. We contemplate and remind ourselves of God's patience towards us, His love towards us. When you lose patience, when you desire revenge, you have lost sight of God's patience with you. You've lost sight of your sin and of the grace and goodness of Christ. Every single thing that is asked of us in this passage only mirrors the actions that Jesus took for us and still takes for us every day. 
You were and you sometimes are the wayward, the unruly. Jesus left the 99 to find you, to embrace you, to pick you up, put you on his shoulders and bring you back into his fold. You are the faint-hearted. He has never left your side and he calls out to you, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says in your trial, take heart, I have overcome the world. You were the weak, powerless to change your condition and save yourself. Romans 5 verse 6 says this, For while we were still weak, it's the same word as in our passage, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Or did you imagine it was only for the fine, upstanding people like yourself for whom he died? You are the weak. And he calls to you every day and says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And it's Christ's own promise that transforms your heart. He has forever borne the penalty of your sin, removed the wrath that you deserved. And he holds you if you are his. He holds you today with a grip of iron and will not let you go. And even more than all of this, It's not just that you are wayward or faint-hearted or weak. Romans 5 verse 10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. We weren't just indifferent to His rule. In our sin, we were active enemies of His glory and of His reign. And that should have meant destruction for us. But Christ came and he is the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. We are no longer children of wrath. We are called the children of God. How can we seek revenge? We are those for whom righteous vengeance was diverted. And more, therefore, than just resisting the desire for revenge, Paul says you are to seek, seek the good of all. And as I was studying this passage, I couldn't help but believe that Paul writes these words with something looming large in his own mind and heart. God's long suffering towards him, the one who had persecuted and pursued the church to destroy it. Paul uses a very specific phrase here when he says, seek, always seek the good of all. Leon Morris explains, he says, the verb means something like pursue vigorously, and is actually the usual word for persecute. It is interesting to find Paul the persecutor using this strong term for the Christian duty of doing good, but that's the transformation that has taken place in his heart. All the motivation that Paul needs for patience and good, a good response to evil, for pouring out his life daily for the good of the church, is the awareness of what God has done for him the grace he received when he should have received something else. And Paul knows that his life has been redeemed for a purpose, a purpose that calls for sacrifice and forgiveness. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12 to 16, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. If you are a Christian, you've been appointed to a service. It's as simple as that. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says this, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you want to be patient with people, develop a heart that says, I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is Paul's heart. If they can look at my life and see the patience of Christ. If they could look at my life and see the beauty of Christ. This is the goal. It's the good that we seek. It's the greatest good that could exist for us or for anyone else. The church, even our enemies. Conformity to the beauty of Christ. And so we don't love people just because they are lovable. We love imperfect people because Christ loved us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are very, very grateful for your patience towards us. A long suffering for us. We think of what you endured the cross and the mockery and the scorn and the shame that you endured the pain the wrath of God that you endured we think of all of this so that we could have life in you and so we pray that you would help us to have the cross again loom large in our hearts and our minds and help us to be patient with one another Lord, I pray again that you would meet us where we are at. For those who are faint-hearted this morning, oh Jesus, I pray that you would encourage them, that you would lift them up, that they would understand how much they are loved by you, your children, Lord. And I pray for those who are maybe angry, bitter towards somebody else, I pray that they would know your forgiveness, that they would be able to forgive, that you would break down the root of bitterness in their hearts. And Lord, we just ask sincerely and earnestly that you would build your church more and more in love. Knit us together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I do encourage you, if you need somebody to pray with you. There will be people up front who are, are, are very willing and waiting. If you ever need, don't leave here without that, that encouragement. Come forward for prayer. I'm going to read um, the benediction that Paul gives in this letter as we leave. 1 Thessalonians 5 from verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Thank you for being here. And stay for some coffee. Is there coffee after the 10 o'clock? I don't know. Yeah, stay for some coffee. <laughs>